Good morning. Again, welcome to the Battles Within. I appreciate your attendance today. We're continuing our study in the uh, the series entitled, Who is Jesus? This is session number 10. That means 10 weeks are going on and we're still just beginning. So uh, we uh, are working our way through the through John and I mean through the uh, uh, through the ministry of John the Baptist because you can't study Jesus without studying John. John is a critical part of Jesus's ministry began and John was a forerunner of Jesus. He was specifically in pace and time put there for a particular reason. So we had to cover him. So in the last two sessions, uh, sessions eight and nine, we were focusing on John the Baptist as part of Jesus's baptism. Now we've covered uh, the angels' announcements of John's birth, the foretelling of John's impact on the world. We've covered John's first experience with the Messiah while he was still in his mother's womb. This was the Holy Spirit inside of John leaping for joy. The child himself could not understand anything, but the Holy Spirit in him, remember the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. He's not a part. You don't get part of the Spirit. You either get the Spirit or you don't get the Spirit. Um, I know, uh, uh, so we talked about that. John's message of repentance to the people we covered last week. Talking about his message to the people. And today we're going to cover John's ministry. His lifestyle, a proclamation of Jesus as one to come, the Messiah. So let's look, go ahead and dive in. We're going to look in Luke chapter 3. We're going to go in Luke and Matthew again. See, they cover most of the lives of John. Now, John, the Gospel of John, does start covering John the Baptist. And we will have some of that a little later too. So we see here, first thing, God has a plan and a timetable for a plan. God does not do anything haphazardly. You've heard it said, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Well, one thing you can say about God, God always has a plan. God has a plan for the world. From the foundation of the world, God's plan was in place. Yes, before God ever created the first molecule for the earth and the world as we know it, he already had a plan that would include sending his son to die on the cross for our sins and redemption. It was not an accident. It was not an oh me, oh my. No, God has a plan. So let's look at chapter Luke chapter 3, verses 1, the first, first verse and a half. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Euthria, and the region of Trachonus, and Lastrian, I'm terrible on names, the, tetri, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Ananias and, uh, Ananias and Cephas being the high priests. So we see here that the time period, Luke is the only one who fixes the time when Jesus began his ministry. This is important. This gives us an indication historically of when this took place. He specifically names the years, the location, the people in power. He gives all that information. He locates it by emperor and governor, uh, patriarch and high priest, 
as events of worldwide importance and how it concerns all the kingdoms of men. So let's first look at the political leaders at the time of John and Jesus. Remember what John and Jesus were at the same time period. Yes, John's ministry began as a forerunner of Jesus, but it led right into Jesus. So you can see John's ministry and the situation in John's time, and you can see the situation then in Jesus' time because they're in they're the same. We see the first person that was talked about is is. Tiberius Caesar. He's the stepson and and successor to Augustus. Began to reign as a joint ruler with Augustus in August of 11 AD. On August 19th of 13 AD, Augustus died and Tiberius became the sole ruler. Now, so Luke counts from the beginning of the joint rule and his 15 years, that brings us to 25 A.D. So in August 25 A.D., Tiberius began his 15th year, which is about that year Jesus would have completed his 30th year. You say, hold on, wasn't Jesus born in 00 A.D.? No, the monk who created the calendar uh, missed it by a few years. So it could have been that Jesus was actually born in uh, uh, like 5 B.C., according to our schedule on time. So if you're looking for 2,000 years since Jesus came back, that took place in 1995 by the counts of the calendars that we have based upon the years of the uh, who was in charge. So it would have been uh, 1995. So that means it has been... Uh, 2,000, let's see, today's 20, you get my picture, I'm not going to calculate it for you, but it's easy for you to calculate how long it's been since Jesus was born. Now, uh, 2,000 years since he died is uh, coming up, right? Some people think that is a significant event that may take place at that time, 2,000 years, I, I don't know, for the time and seasons we know not, we just know he's coming back. So anyway, we see here. Now let's look at these rulers in the timetable. Tiberius, uh, Tiberius Caesar. He was born in 41 B.C. and he died on March the 16th, 37 A.D. As a citizen, uh, he distinguished himself as an orator, a soldier, a public official. As an emperor, though, he's lazy. He was self-indulgent, um, he was very uh, passionate, but he was also vindictive and cruel. He was a master at deception and trickery, and therefore was a scourge on his people. So then let's look at uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. He, uh, the providence of Judea was subdued by Pompey and brought under Roman control in 63 B.C. This is during the silent years of our Bible. It's history from the date till the governorship of Pilate can be found in Josephus. So you can go to the, the I'll tell you, Josephus is a great book. Josephus does talk about Jesus. He talks more about John than he talks about Jesus, but you can see a lot of information and details from Josephus. What I like to do, Josephus, part of his book, gives a history of the Jews. He calls the history of man. And he goes through from a Jewish perspective. Remember, they did a lot of tradition. They name names and they tell into the gradual back. Now, that's not scripture, 
But it's interesting to read the historical background. It may give you a better understanding of when you read something in the Bible. If you read the historical perspective of it, it may help you understand it better. Understand the, Remember, there's something called um, bibliology. And that's the study of the Bible. And uh, you need to do that in relationship to history. So, you know, because God had a message for us. The same message he has for the Jews in their day, he has for us today. The question is, what was that message? And so to understand the message he had for them, we need to understand the historical perspective of the time and locations where it took place. That's what we're talking about right now. This is what happened. Well, then we also have Herod. Herod also called Antipas, Antipas, the ruler who murdered John the Baptist and who assisted at the trial of Jesus. It says, being patriarch of Galilee. Now, Patriarch typically means ruler of the fourth of the country, but it was also loosely used to talk about a petty tribe, uh, tributary prince. In other words, somebody that really didn't have a lot of power. I think that's really probably more applicable here because uh, he was not really, he was kind of a petty prince. He didn't have as much power as, as uh, the rulers in Rome. He was pretty much at their will to do what they needed to do. Uh, this province now of, of Galilee is north of Samaria, measured about 25 miles from the north to south, was 27 miles east to the west. It was a rich and fertile country, this, the area of Galilee that, the, that Herod was in charge of. Uh, Philip was the half-brother of Herod. Now, he was distinguished by justice, moderation, and he was somewhat of a decent man. But you remember now, his uh, wife was the one who uh, divorced him and married her brother, Herod, and uh, where John the Baptist has got his head cut off as a result of uh, of uh, Philip's uh, daughter, uh, the daughter of Herodias, the ex-wife of Philip, requesting the head of John the Baptist. So we see that was Philip. Now, he built uh, Caesarea Philippi and transformed Bethesda, Julius, from a village to a city and died in that city at 44 A.D. Now, after his death, his dominion became part of the Roman province of Syria. So we can see where modern Syria is at today. It says he was the patriarch of the region of Atiria, the district 30 miles long by 25 miles broad, lying north of Batana, east of Mount Hermon, west of this other place, it received its name from Detour, son of Ishmael. So we see the region he was in was the region that was covered by the Arabs. It was, uh, its Ishmaelite inhabitants were conquered by Aristobulus, king of Judea, at 100 BC and forced him to accept the uh, Jewish faith. So these people, even though they were Arabs, were forced by this king of Judea in 100 BC to accept the Jewish faith. So they were Jews, somewhat Gentile Jews, I guess you would say. Now they were marauders and famous for use of the bow. So they were not, they were just, they were similar to what we have in that part of the country today. It says the region of uh, Tacranus, a district about 22 miles north of the south, its name means rough or stony. It lies between uh, Ateria and the desert and has been infested with robbers from the earliest of ages. It is called Argob in the Old Testament, and it is an ocean of balsamic, of, of balsamic rock and boulders tossed about in the wildest confusion 
intermingle with fusions and crevices in every direction. In other words, it's not a nice place. You can imagine, you've seen pictures of these things. It's got this volcanic rock and boulders. It looks like somebody just threw them up with the volcanic exploded and then they formed there. That's what was available there. Also, then there's a guy named uh, Lysanus. Then there's no official records of him. There's history tales of uh, the Lysanus king of Chalice under Mount Lebanon who was put to death by Mark Anthony in 36 B.C., uh, that was 60-odd years before this, so it couldn't have been him. And then there's another uh, who was listed as Tatra of Abilene in the reign of uh, Gagalus and Claudius 20 years after this. So probably this guy here is probably the grand, the son of that king of Chalice and probably the father of the other one. So he was a Tatra of Abilene, the city of Abba, uh, which comes from the Hebrew words Abel, meaning meadow, Eight miles from Damascus, 38 miles from Baalbek. The province surrounding is mentioned because it subsequently formed part of the Jewish territory, being given to King Agrippa by Emperor Claudius at 41 AD. So, all that information is simply say that God is detailed. When he gives us information, it's very detailed to let you know the location. Who was there politically speaking and who was there? Politics makes a difference. Who you elect in office makes a difference. That's important to us as Christians to realize. It does make a difference. And here it made a difference in this, who were the leaders of that time. Now, we also turn to religious leaders. You had Ananias was the high priest from 7 to 14 AD when he was deposed by the procurator. And then Cephas was a son-in-law and was a successor to Annas. Luke gives both names because one was the rightful and the other was the acting high priest. So, Ananias was the real priest, and Cephas was the son-in-law, which was put in the place of being the priest. Interesting enough, during this time period, uh, the Gentiles kind of ran amok among these, with the Jewish laws concerning this high priest office. There was no less than 28 high priests in the last 107 years of the temple's existence. There was 28 high priests during that last 107 years of the temple. Now, we see God had a plan. I mean, God had a time. Uh, uh, we talked about God God had a timetable. But God also has a man. See, when God has a plan, he has a man to implement that plan. Luke 3, 2b says, The word of God came into John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. See, God always has a plan. And part of the plan includes choosing the right man for the job. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. The wilderness of Judea. This is the most uninhabitable mass of barren ridges extending the whole length of the Dead Sea with a few miles north, further north. It is from 5 to 10 miles wide. This is where John was preaching at, in the wilderness. Uh, let's look at John the man. Matthew 3, 4 says, And the same John had his remnant of camel's hair. Well, back in just a moment. Remember, we know who John is. We already know John was the son of Zechariah. It was just to specify that we know who John is. This is the same John that was born of, the, of Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary. 
The same baby who leaped in the whose Holy Spirit inside of him leaped when Jesus walked into the room. This is the same one that was prophesied by the angel that he would do those things. And so it says John, the son of Zechariah. So now he says the same John had his ribbon of camel's hair and leather leathern girdle around his loin and his meat were locusts and wild honey. So let's look at John's dress. Well, he had camel's hair and uh, he had leather belt. Now, camel's hair, simply they took the skin of a camel and then what they would do is they'd cut it out. They would they would cut it. They wouldn't actually sew it together. They'd just cut out a garment, probably with a hole put over your head. And then what they would do is they'd take some type of a leather belt or they make a leather and they would tie it together. So he was pretty much just wearing a loin, I mean, a kind of a leather skin with a, a rope around him, uh, you know, a leather belt around him. These are not only the clothes of the poor, but established the link. Second Kings 1.8 said he was, a, it's talking about Elijah. Elijah said he was a, a or according to Second Kings talking about Elijah, he was a hairy man and girded with a girdle of leather about his loin. And he said it is Elijah the Tishmite. So we see there's a comparison here. If you were to see Elijah and you see uh, John the Baptist, there would be some similarities. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the heart of children to their fathers. Least I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we see it was also prophesied that also Elijah would come and be, and be uh, the forerunner of the great and dead, dreadful day of the Lord. Uh, some believe that Elijah is the one of the two prophets that will come back. Remember, Elijah didn't die. He was trans, He was taken up by the chariot of fire. And so they believe that Elijah is one of the two prophets that come back and foretold before the great mighty day of the Lord. But we also see that John the Baptist came and proclaimed the truth. So he fits in here with this Elijah. Let's look at John's diet. It says locusts. Now, some people think locusts they were talking about was some type of fruit from the locust tree, but that's not likely. Locusts were giant grasshoppers, and they were eaten in the east. In this area that he was in, it was not a fertile area of growth. So it's very possible that probably what he was talking about was locusts, because this was a barren area that would be full of these type of things. And so he probably ate giant grasshoppers. It wasn't unusual. There are places around the world that has uh, insect markets in Asia where they actually raise insects for sale. Kind of gets me, but they do. So this was something that just because our society not really big on eating insects doesn't mean that the world doesn't eat insects. So here they did. Wild honey is just that. It's not gum of the tree. He just took wild honey that he had and he mixed the grasshoppers in, probably because little honey made them go down better, I'm guessing. But, you know, anyway, that's what he ate. Both of them, by the way, suggest that he's a poor man living in the wilderness. Both Elijah and John had stern ministries with simple garb, simple diet. And it confirmed their message and condemned idolatry of physical and spiritual softness. See, they showed that they didn't worry about the comforts of this life. Their focus was on doing the will of God. And not so much involved. So many times we do. We look at our houses and our cars and our property and our ties and whatever we have on. And we think about our possessions. And sometimes we get burdened down with that. Elijah and John the Baptist were not concerned of, so, of, of, of those things at all. They only focused on doing what God had them to do. 
So even the food and dress of John preached. God has a message. Luke 3, 3. And he came into all the country around Mount Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. He came into the region of Jordan. John made his public appearance, and like that of Elijah, it was a sudden one. It just, out of nowhere, suddenly he was there. He came into all the country of Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance. He didn't work his way up gradually. He didn't send out PR information. He just started preaching. In the Old Testament, the Jordan Valley is called uh, Arabah. And the modern Arabs call it the Gore. This is the deepest valley in the world. It's the lowest part about 1,300 feet below the level of the ocean. So it's kind of a pit. Said so John came preaching the baptism of repentance unto the remission of sins. So his message demanded a personal change that would lead to remission or forgiveness of one's sin. So John preached the message of repentance. We talked about that last week. <coughs> John is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 43. And he's quoted it in Matthews. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a way, a highway for our God. It's clear that John was the prophesied forerunner of Christ mentioned here in Isaiah is clear. In his role, John proposed, John's purpose was to prepare hearts for the Messiah. That's what John was supposed to do. It was to prepare hearts for the Messiah. He was to bring awareness of sin among Israel so that those people that were hearing it could be saved, could receive the salvation. Before you get somebody saved, they have to be lost. So that's John's purpose. The angel had even told John's father, you remember, in Luke 1, 15-17, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. <coughs> Excuse me. And many of the children of Israel shall be turned to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was I, This was John the Baptist's uh, uh, future foretold by the angel, and John was here now fulfilling it. John himself applied this to himself. In John 1, 23, says, he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. See, he says, I am the one. God foretold, I'm coming to do this. Uh, now, this understanding of uh, make straight the way kind of has in mind of uh, 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 building a great road for the arrival of the king. So when the king went into places, the idea was that they would send in front of him these people that would make sure the road was straight and didn't have any potholes. They would fill the holes and knock down any hills that were in the way. They would make it an easy place for the king to come so that the king didn't have a rough ride and that the king could get to where he was going quicker without obstacles in his way. This was a practice of the uh, modern monarchs. Uh, Sometimes they would have to pioneer to open passes 
to level ways to remove any impediments, any trees that might have grown back up in the roadway or whatever. They came in form. That what they were. This is the message. This is the idea that you have here. The idea of preparing the way is the actual preparation must take place in our hearts of. See, so John's was the, the road John was trying to pay was not a physical road, but was a spiritual road. He was trying to tell these people that you, to prepare the way of God, we've got to first fill these potholes in our heart. We've got to smooth those lumps. We've got to get rid of those trees and bushes. We've got to knock down those hedges. We ought to build the road and like preparing what God must do in our hearts, right? Now, both things are expensive. Both must deal with different problems and environments. And both must take an expert engineer. You can't fix the road without a qualified person. You know, we have the Bible to teach us the way. But the Bible says, how can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they're sent? See, the gospel, God has given men the power to preach the word. That's what John was doing. John was the messenger that God sent. John was the engineer of the heart, the road. He was the construction road engineer of your heart to try to prepare the way, to get rid of the holes, to get rid of the knots. That's what he was doing. See, Jesus was the coming Messiah, the king, and John the Baptist was the one crying in the wilderness. Through John's message of repentance, he worked to prepare the way for the Lord. You know, we all forget to appreciate how vital the preparing the work of the Lord is. You know, uh, it takes a long time to prepare this message as an example. It took me four and a half, five hours to work on this message for this morning. I'm preaching this morning at a church, and I've been working on that message for uh, several days. And I worked on it last night for three hours. I worked on it again this morning for about two hours. <laughs> uh, and I still don't feel good. You know, God's going to lead me and direct me in what I need to say. The point is, preparation is important. And any great work of God begins with great preparation. John, the apostle Paul, that is, when God saved him, he spent two years in the wilderness, in the desert, with Jesus personally communing with him to prepare him for what he had to face ahead. See, God requires preparations. God requires that. And the preparation is great. We had vacation Bible school this summer. It took a lot of preparation. You know, we have to prepare. It takes time to prepare. So God sent John to prepare. God's message is well received by many. So we see then in Matthew 3, 5 and 6, Then went out him to Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions around about Jordan and were baptized in him in the Jordan. So John's ministry met with a wonderful response. Many people recognized that they're, of their sinfulness. God used John to convict them of their sin and their need for the Messiah. And they were willing to do something about it. Under the blessing of God, John's message of repentance and the call to prepare for the Messiah bore great fruit. Many people were repenting of their sins and were getting their hearts ready for the Messiah. Now, baptism was for sinners. And no Jew conceived of himself as a sinner shut out from God. So the message now now we know that 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 some baptism they baptize cleansing themselves is a cleansing ritual. And so therefore there were times that people were baptized for cleansing rituals, but in this particular time, this is a baptism baptism for sinners. 
and no Jew wanted to consider himself a sinner. You know, but for the first time in the nation's history, the Jews themselves were realizing their own sin and their own need for God. See, never before had there been such a unique national movement of repentance and the search for God. Never before. There was individual people, but not a nationwide search for God. Most people, uh, his preaching created a widespread revival movement. Uh, His followers made up a significant group within Judaism, which maintained its separate existence well beyond, well into the New Testament period. John's influence. There were people that were still disciples of John that were not saved. Uh, they continued to follow John, the, the Apostle John, I mean, the, the, the John the Baptist, uh, preaching even after Jesus came, even well into centuries later. Josephus actually, as we said, wrote more about John the Baptist than he did about Jesus. John the Baptist, we said, his influence even uh, is seen even decades after the ministry. Paul's third missionary journey in Acts 19.35 19, 3 and 5 says, And he said unto them, Unto, this is the church of Ephesus, says unto them, What, unto what then are ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. So being baptized with John's baptism did not save you. The baptism of John did not save you. The baptism of John showed you conviction of sin, but it didn't save anybody. Baptism today doesn't save anybody. If you're not saved before you go under the water, you're not saved when you come out of the water. You understand? You're not saved because of baptism. But it says there, all Judea and all the regions round about Jordan is determined to let you know that this was a widespread knowledge that was not just the desert. These people from large crowds came out into this wilderness area to see him. It was a hardship to go into that area. It was an easy place. You know, we want to make things easy for people. We have padded pews, air conditioning. You know, we we uh, sing modern music to make people feel good. You know, we uh, do do we do things that we can attract a crowd, you know, and we have giveaways sometimes, and we do a variety of things. And I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with those things. But I'm saying is sometimes we're trying to do that because we're not trusting in God to send the fold. You know, sometimes, I, I think sometimes maybe we need to preach the truth of God's word and make it known and, and, and tell people in the community that, hey, God's word is being preached here. You want to go somewhere where you're going to get ease and get gifts and all those things, that's not us. But if you want to go where the power of God is preached, that's where you need to come. If you want to go somewhere where God's word is preached to the part where the Holy Spirit is going to convict you of your sins and is going to change your life, then that's where you want to go. That's where you come to. And that's what John was offering. That's why people left their comforts. They left their padded pews and their air conditions and their, and their bright lights and their color stages and went out into the desert. The hard places. They traveled hard to get to the place where they could see God's word and feel his presence. I think today that's still true. I think people will come when the word of God is preached without without any compromise. 
Anyway, we see here that John's baptism offered a ceremonial washing that confessed sin and demonstrated repentance. So before we can gain the kingdom of heaven, we must recognize our poverty of spirit. Acts 3.17 says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Repent ye therefore and be converted. you got to repent before you can be converted. You gotta be lost before you can be saved. Now, baptism means simply to immerse or to overwhelm. John didn't sprinkle when he baptized. That was custom uh in some other Jewish ceremonial washings, John completely immersed those he baptized. Barclay said this naturally, therefore, baptism was not a mere sprinkling with water, but a bath in which his whole body was bathed. That was the custom of the day. So we know that when people baptize, remember they baptize for ceremonial cleaning, cleansing. Here John was not baptizing for ceremonial cleansing. He was baptizing as a as a sign that they will that they were repenting of their sins. And their whole body needed to be washed. And therefore they were baptism was a, a natural. Now, some people say, well, it's a really ceremonial, therefore it really doesn't matter if we sprinkle. I, I, that's clearly not what the intent was of the of the uh, Old Testament baptism. I mean, the New Testament baptism. Baptism was practiced in the Jewish community already. We know that. And Jews, John's day to submit to baptism was essentially to say, "I confess that I'm a sinner as far away from God as a Gentile, and I need to get right with Him." It was a hard thing for these Jews to do that. Again, I'm as far away from God as a Gentile. And therefore, I need to get right with him. This was the real work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicted these people of sin. See, the only way we get saved today is for the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins. John's baptism might have been related to the Jewish practice of baptizing Gentile converts. See, when Gentiles became Jews, they were baptized. It was a part of that baptism that washed away the old world and the old sins of their, their, their sinful flesh to become new creatures in the sight of God as a Jew. So they became for they became uh, uh, Jews when they proselyted them. Though it may have been some link to it, the unique John simply is known as John the Baptizer. Uh, there were other people baptized, but no one really got the name, but John the Baptist was known worldwide. Still today, people know John the Baptist. John the Baptist. We never say John, the son of Zechariah. We say John the Baptizer. John the Baptist. If there were a lot of people doing it, it wouldn't have been quite as unique, right? So John was the one doing the baptism. Now, Christian baptism is kind of like John's baptism in the sense that it demonstrates repentance. But there's also more in the Christian baptism. See, being baptized into Christ is you're being baptized not only into the remission of sin, but to his death and resurrection. So you're baptized into sin, washing your sins away, but you're coming up a new creature. So Christian baptism means more. Romans 6, 3-7 says, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are baptized with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. 
knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for that he is dead is freed from sin. So we see that baptism of the Christian is far more than that. Baptism of the Christian signifies his death, his burial of sin, his redemption from sin, and his resurrection to new life. So John's baptism was only for the remission of sin. But Jesus' baptism, the baptism of the church, the baptism of Christianity is, yes, remission of sin, but resurrection to new life. Said so they were confessing their sins. This was another important aspect of John's preaching. The Jewish people were recognizing their sin. They were repenting of their sins. We now see that they're not only repenting, but they're confessing it. Now, these Jewish people were very serious about getting right with God. This confession of sins by individuals was a new thing in Israel. Remember, collective confession on the Great Day of Atonement. Instead of them confessing their sins, they all relied upon the Great Day of Atonement, where they would take and take the, the, the sheep and they would sacrifice for the sins of all the people. Uh, but no great spontaneous self-unburdenment of penitent souls was done. That was not done. Yet every man apart from himself, people weren't doing that. So John's baptism was about the individual. Not the nation of Israel, but the individual Jews. The individual people that they themselves needed to repent. Not the nation. Yes, the nation had its own problems. But it's the individuals within the nation. These three steps are still needed today. If a soul desires to seek God in their lives, they got to repent of their sins, confess their sins, and then accept the Savior. John sets the record straight in Matthew 3, 7. But when they saw, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to baptism, now this is the introduction of these two important groups. This is the first time we see these important groups. Uh, they were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now they're similar in some ways, the Sadducees and Pharisees were both religious sects within Judaism during the time of Christ. Both groups honored Moses and the law, and they both had a measure of political power. The Sanhedrin, which was the 70 members of the Supreme Court of ancient Israel, had members from the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But now let's look at the differences. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Religiously, the Sadducees were more conservative in one doctrinal area. They insisted on a literal interpretation of the text of scriptures. So they were very much literal. They were the they were the Sadducees. They were a lot of scribes were Sadducees. The Pharisees, on the other hand, gave oral tradition equal authority. That's why the Pharisees wrote, you see, somebody being Pharisaical, because they'd write all these detailed rules and regulations. How far you could walk in a day, how many sticks you could pick up. I mean, the Pharisees gave lots and lots of rules. Uh if the Sadducees couldn't find a command in the in their Bible, then they dismissed it as man-made and didn't do it. The Sadducees rejected the belief in the resurrection of the dead. But the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. I always say that people always heard it this way, that the, the, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees did not. That's why they're sad, you see. Just saying, that's why they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees denied the afterlife, holding that the soul perished at death. The Pharisees believed in afterlife and the reward and punishment of individuals. 
The Sadducees rejected the idea of an unseen spiritual world, but the Pharisees believed in demons and angels. Socially, the Sadducees are more elite than the Pharisees. The Sadducees intended to be uh, wealthy and to hold more powerful positions, but the so therefore the chief priest and the high priest were Sadducees, and they held the majority of the seats of the Sanhedrin, but the Pharisees were more representative of the ordinary working people and the respect of the masses. So the Sadducees' locals of power was the temple, and the Pharisees controlled the synagogues. The Sadducees were friendly with Rome and more accommodating to Roman law, and the Pharisees were resistant to the law, to the Roman law. Jesus had more run-ins with the Pharisees than the Sadducees, probably because uh, the Sadducees were often concerned with politics than religion. And they ignored Jesus until they began to fear that he might bring unwanted Roman attention. At that point, the Sadducees and Pharisees set aside their differences and united and began to work. So as a group, we see that the Sadducees ceased to exist after Jerusalem's destruction. There were no more Sadducees. They were destroyed when Jerusalem was destroyed. But we know the Pharisees continue to live on. And they are, and we see them in the modern uh, the modern uh, Judaism today. So now John's message to those that stumble over works. So he's talking about the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, Matthew 7 to 12, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who have warned you from the wrath to come? John accused these leaders of wanting to appear anxious to the Messiah. Uh, for the Messiah, but not only, re- but not truly repenting. John demanded fruit worthy of repentance. See, he accused them they wanted to appear to the people that they were repenting because that was the modern thing to do, right? That was why all these people come out and see John. They wanted to be counted among their numbers so the people would have the same respect for them as they did before. And John warns them to flee from the wrath to come. This is the wrath of God. He warns them that wrath is fair and well deserved. That this wrath is often ignored and disrespected because it's not immediate, but it's to come. God, if he warns them of the wrath to come, uh, this wrath that he says is no less certain just because it didn't suddenly come. It's coming. We know that Jesus is coming again. We know that the world is coming to an end. We know God's wrath is coming. It is just as real today as it will be when it comes. We can warn you today to flee from the wrath to come. That's what John did. This wrath cannot be stood against. The only way to survive it is to flee from it, to flee from the wrath. So John the Baptist instructs them to flee. Flee implies immediate action, swift action, straight movement with no diversion. Flee. Do it now. Flee from the wrath to come. Matthew 3, 8 says, Bring forth fruit, therefore meet for repentance. (coughs) Suppose we mean business when we say we repent. In that case, our entire lifestyle must be in harmony. If you repent, God has changed your life and there should be signs of it. James 2.14 said, What what doth it profit my soul? Though a man say he hath faith, hath not works, can faith save him? Matthew 3.9 And think not to say within yourself, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise children up into Abraham. God, John warns them, Stop trusting your Jewish heritage. It's not going to get you there. You know, 
while he taught that day that Abraham's merits were plenty for the Jews, so therefore they were going to go to heaven because they were his children. John says that's not acceptable. See, God can raise, he pointed to the stones in the rivers, those big volcanic stones that were out there. And he said, look, these stones here, God can raise up these stones to worship him in place of you. Don't rely upon your heritage. God is not a respecter of person and can use anyone any time to accomplish his will. Matthew three ten. Now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not good fruit, he hewed down and cast into the fire. This is an illusion of a woodman who's already got an axe, already put it up against the tree, ready to, you know, aimed right for it. It's kind of like a golf club. If you golf and you put your club down and swatch your balls and get the right distance. Well, this axe man has already put his axe into the tree and was ready to start swinging the axe. It said he's already got it ready. He's already, all he's got to do is pull it back and start going. The axe is already, the emphasis, it's already. Not only is there coming Messiah's wrath, but there's always, there's beginning of Messiah discrimination among the descendants of Abraham. Just as the kingdom is drawing ready, so is the judgment. John says the axe is ready. It's going to cut down those. To preach the kingdom is to preach repentance. Any tree, not every tree, any tree that does not bring forth good fruit will be destroyed. Not every tree, only any tree that does not bring forth good fruit. Spurgeon said it this way, No mere pruning or trimming work did John come to do. He was the handler of a sharp axe that was to fell every worthless tree. Matthew 3.11 I indeed baptize you with water and repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. See, John's baptism was one of repentance. It's not identical to the Christian. We've already seen that. But it includes the demonstration of repentance and cleansing. He recognized that the believer identification with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is greater than just the repentance of baptism. John recognized his place. He says, I'm not worthy to carry the sandals. He didn't consider himself far above those whom he called to repentance. He says, I am just like you. I am a sinner. He knew where he stood in relationship with Jesus. John put himself lower than Jesus than a regular disciple of a typical rabbi. John says, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. This is a promise of outpouring of the Spirit. He said, listen, the baptism I give you is nothing compared to the baptism that, that the Messiah will bring. To baptize with fire means to bring fire of judgment, which will purify the pure and destroy the wicked. Matthew 3.12 says, Whose fan it is a hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, the proud and unrepentant leaders were just as useless to God. John therefore predicts a real cleansing. The process of separating the wheat from the chaff, you know, you took a willowing fork, you threw it up in the air when you're done, and the chaff, which was not as heavy as the grain, flew away with the breezes. The Jewish leaders thought the Messiah would come with judgment, but only against Israel's enemies. John makes them see. They were blind to their self-righteous confidence that others needed to get right with God. John continued to preach and wait for the Lamb. Luke 3.18, and many other things in his exhortation, preached he unto the people. So again, we see here, as we close this lesson out today, we see here again, the Bible provides us what we needed to know. He doesn't tell us everything that John said, because he said many other things did John preach to the people. 
He did not meant to be exhaustive biological study. It was meant to give you what you needed. So what is provided here is meant to show us that Jesus is who Jesus is. The life of John does just that, right? We see that John provided a baptism that would lead to repentance, but it would fall short of the repentance you needed, the baptism you needed to be right with God. John was here to prepare the way, but was not the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man comes to the Father but by me. John came to prepare the way, but not the way. Next week, we'll see the finally get into the baptism of Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we have. We can come. We can worship you. Lord, lots of information here to cover. I pray, Lord, that you help us to understand it, apply it in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for John, who was willing to make a stand. Help us, Lord, to be John, the voice of the wilderness sometimes, proclaiming the truth. Help us to prepare the way. Help us to repent of our sins and show others to do the same. Thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I do thank you for your time and your attention today. Uh, Lots of stuff here. We look forward to next week as we get into the actual Jesus and the baptism. So until then, God bless you and see you again.